Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. So huge Shark Tank fan, obviously. Got a phone call from a friend of mine. He said, hey, did you know that Kevin Harrington is coming to Buffalo to speak? $300 a ticket, bought a ticket. I had scheduled eight meetings for that day. I rescheduled them all so I could go. I went to the event. Very cool. Saw Kevin speak. He's in the back selling autograph and books, taking pictures for social media. And I'm in line. I'm like, if I just ask for a picture, I don't stand out at all. Everyone wants a picture. I'm a marketing guy. I got to come up with something. Think, 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 think. It's my turn. Inspiration strikes. I say, Mr. Harrington, I'm here to take you to the airport. most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Seth Green. He is the founder of the direct response marketing firm, Market Domination LLC, which specializes in helping business owners optimize their marketing funnels and grow their businesses through podcasting. He is also the host of the Sharkpreneur Podcast, a top-rated podcast that he hosts with Shark Tank's Kevin Harrington. In addition to that, Seth is a judge on Pitch Tank, which is also the live version of Shark Tank. And he's the author of seven books and has been featured in Inc., Forbes, Money Watch, and many other places where you may have seen him. Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a huge honor to be here. I'm super excited. We're going to have a lot of fun today. This is going to be awesome for a number of reasons. First of all, this is going to be really, I think, a marketing pillar episode of The Maverick Show. We're definitely going to go deep into a lot of tactical stuff. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are really going to get a lot out of what you're going to have to share on that level. The other reason this is going to be amazing is because you and I have been very good friends for going on over 25 years now since back in high school. And I think it's just going to be great. I'm just excited for my audience to meet you. So it's, it's great to have you here today, buddy. Awesome. I am excited to a little stroll down memory lane and a little glimpse into the future. <laughs> so I feel like we need to start. I mean, I definitely want to go through your entrepreneurial journey and all that, but I feel like we really need to start that actually all the way back in high school, which is when we met. And 
I literally, one of the first days of freshman year of my high school career, I ran into you, met you, and we had a conversation about something, probably hip-hop music. We were both into it at the time. And I was like, oh, wow, this guy's cool. And then later on, I saw you. You're off to something. I was like, man, where are you going? And you were like, I'm going to this amazing club. It's called FBLA, the Future Business Leaders of America. And I was like, what's that all about? And you're like, well, they have these amazing conferences. And, you know, you go from all around the state. We were in Buffalo, New York at the time uh, is where we went to high school. And you're like, yeah, they have these statewide conferences and people come from all over the state and they have these dances and it's this big social thing. I was like, where can I sign up for that? You're like, come with me. So I was like, okay, cool. I don't know anything about business, but I'll go to that. And sure enough, I went and you and I participated in the Future Business Leaders of America Club for four consecutive years and had some really epic adventures over our high school career. That is very true. And little did we know that we'd actually become the future business leaders of America. It turned out to be true. It is pretty ironic. And it was a winding road, in fact, although my entrepreneurial roots and yours as well did actually go back to that time because even in high school, you and I were both starting businesses and making money in different spaces. And I remember very early on in high school in my interest in hip hop drove me to start becoming a DJ. And then I parlayed that into to ultimately a business where I started DJing proms and weddings and all that kind of stuff. And likewise, you were doing all sorts of things. I remember you were first and foremost a magician. Yes, which I parlayed into a business as a professional magician, actually getting paid to perform. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like in high school, we were, we had, you know, we had the entrepreneurial seeds there and we were doing it. We got into all kinds of adventures as well because I would bring you a lot of times on my DJ gigs because I, you know, I needed somebody there to take requests and help me to set up my stuff and all that. And it was fun to have my friends go with me and, and, you know, pay you something for doing that. But those got to be some pretty crazy adventures. You remember some of those? I do. I think one of my most fun, you called me, I remember um, the one probably that is the most vivid is you called me one night and said, Hey, want to go to a prom tonight? And I said, you know, sure. And went over to your house and, you know, we packed all the DJ gear into your dad's suburban extended version, extra long suburban. And then, you know, your mom is like, well, I'm a little worried about tonight, but I know I feel better knowing that you're going with him. And that did not sound very good. And I said, okay, Mrs. Bowles, I'll do my best to take care of him. And, you know, I, we get in the car and this was no iPhone, no GPS back then, straight roadmaps. And you hand me this roadmap and say, you're navigating, which is not my strong suit either. <laughs> and I said, where are we going? And you say, we're going to Wellsville. And I said, what? I've never heard of Wellsville. Where is Wellsville? And you said, I don't know, but it's on the map somewhere. And we got to be there in like half an hour. And I said, okay. So I'm paging through the map and it goes to more than one page and then another page and then another page. And I'm doing some bad math and figuring it's like an hour and a half away and there's no way we're going to make it on time. And he said, don't worry about it. I got this and proceeded to drive like 85 miles an hour, you know, way out into the country. And if you've ever driven 85 miles an hour in a extended cab suburban filled with really heavy DJ equipment, I do not suggest it. It is not the <laughs> safest thing in the world. A speeding tank and, you know, again, we were driving with a physical roadmap to someplace we had never been and didn't know how to get to. So we made a couple wrong turns along the way. I'll take responsibility for at least one of those. 
And it just kept getting later and later and later. And there are no cell phones at this point in time. So there's no way to call them and tell them we're going to be late. There's no way to call your parents. Not that they could have done anything. They couldn't have directed us. And you're speeding, you're speeding. And finally, we get somewhere relatively, I think we were maybe 15, 20 minutes away. And the inevitable happens. And we got pulled over by the cops. And again, this is way out in the country, more farmland than houses. And there is, you know, the cops pull us over and we try and explain the situation, but the car is registered to your dad. And maybe I think there was something where the registration wasn't in the glove compartment or something. And your driver's license didn't match up with something or whatever. And they had no way to confirm anything. But, you know, 15 minutes later, we're still sitting there and there are now like four, all the entire Wellsville Police Department, all four cars is now gathered around us and they're spectators. And this is the most exciting thing that's happened to them in forever. We finally clarify that you do have a right to drive this car and they let us go. And we finally get to the prom and obviously we're significantly late and you know, we missed dinner out, whatever, when they were eating and we're frantically setting up as kids are standing around wanting to dance and have no nothing to dance to. And then you start playing your normal prom playlist, which was, you know, classic 90s hip hop. And we start noticing something is awry when no one is dancing and a large majority of the boys at this high school prom are wearing cowboy hats. And people start coming up and making requests, none of which I have ever heard of and none of which you ever, you have. And I think like the one country record, and this is physical records because it's 20 plus years ago that you owned was like Achy Breaky Heart by like Billy Ray Cyrus, which you played instead of one song, I think you played the whole album like over and over and over again, praying that we would get out of there alive. (laughs) It was a very interesting experience, you know, and it was somebody else had hired me to do it the very last minute. I was like a a stand, which is why I was so late. Somebody canceled. Somebody canceled. And so I was filling in for somebody. So it wasn't like a gig that I had booked. Because of course, if I had booked it, I would have gone through what are all the songs you want and what are the whole thing. And you go through the whole business process. But you might have said, I'm the wrong DJ for you. (laughs) Or I would, no, you get the music. You you buy records. You go out and buy the stuff that they want to hear. And so in this case, it was, so I was filling in for somebody and I had no idea where the place was and it was supposed to be like oh, i think it's 30 minutes away it's two hours away yeah right and then they're like oh well what are they you know and they didn't give me any information or any of that kind of stuff but it was amazing though because we did end up having a blast of a time you know it was kind of like that scene in the movie the blues brothers where they go you know they're driving around and then they pull into bob's country bunker and you know they start playing the blues music and everybody's like what is this and they're throwing the you know the stuff at the um at the stage and stuff and then all of a sudden they're like hey, let's try to play Rawhide. Let's play the theme from Rawhide. And and everybody goes crazy, right? And then from there, they're able to figure out what the crowd wants to hear and play it. And we ended up doing that and having a blast. And by the end of the night, they loved us. Yes. Uh, And we got a rave review and everything was great. But it was one of those just crazy last minute things, which goes along with business. And I feel like it's actually a really good, you know, business lesson in terms of like, one, the types of crazy chaos that gets thrown into your life in business. Two, you wind up in situations that are way out of your comfort zone and you have to figure out on your feet how to handle them, right? Preparation, or in our case, lack thereof. Right. Well, in this situation, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And you learn all of these amazing business lessons. So I feel like a lot of those kind of experiences really, you know, just shaped us though. I mean, coming up through that and having those experiences and figuring out how to resolve them to the point where the client ultimately the end of it comes out happy. Yes. 
never thought of that as a parallel for some of the business chaos that you and I have both gone through, but it is applicable. (laughs) It is definitely applicable. So I feel like now we also should even set the scene in terms of where we're doing this interview, because you and I only see each other probably once every few years. And we are right now in sunny San Diego, California, right on the harbor. The marina is right out there. Super beautiful location. We are drinking a bottle of Italian Pinot Grigio wine, which I know is your go-to varietal of choice. And this one is, uh, this is a really nice one from Italy. So we'll be drinking through that during the episode. And we are actually at, we are attending the Traffic and Conversion Summit, which is the largest marketing conference in North America. There's over 7,000 people here, I believe, this year. And it's just a, an incredible, we, we heard Richard Branson speak yesterday. A lot of the tippy top, you know, sort of legendary marketers are here and doing presentations on what's working for them now. And all that stuff. And then, of course, the parties are crazy. We were up at a a sky bar last night, which had a whole open bar and sashimi spread. And tonight, we're actually literally going to go here, speaking of 90s hip hop, digital underground in concert in just a few hours, which is going to be totally epic. So we see each other, you know, periodically. And so I'm, I'm just super excited that we could we could sit down and do this interview. And it's been really cool, I think, you know, watching each other's journeys, entrepreneurial journeys over the last 20 years and, you know, remaining in touch and all that kind of stuff. Because it's amazing for me just to kind of, you know, to have seen yours and to follow yours and all that. So maybe let's just now kind of go to the next step. I mean, shout out, by the way, to everybody in, uh, you know, our whole Buffalo crew and Williamsville East High School and FBLA and Mrs. Remsen and like that oh whole God. era, yep. you know, big shout out to everybody there. That was, those are formative years. But after that, can you talk a little bit about your journey from there in terms of college and post-college and how your trajectory uh, evolved? Sure. So I went to Syracuse University for a degree in acting. My original life goal was I wanted to be a Broadway star. And my supportive neurotic Jewish parents had suggested I should have a backup plan, which was business and finance. And my senior year, I had seen my friends who graduated the year before me, who had all moved to New York or LA to go make it in the theater business come back for homecoming and tell stories of sleeping on people's couches. All their stuff was in storage. They had apartments the size of postage stamps. They were waitressing, waiting tables, doing three temp jobs, trying to make ends meet till they got their big break. And I realized that the starving actor thing is real. I had always thought it would never apply to me. That was other people. But I saw people who graduated a year ago who honestly I thought were more talented than I was going through this. And I said, oh, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound fun anymore now that it's real. So... When I had started Syracuse, it was, obviously it's less expensive than it is now, but it was still about $30,000 a year or 20 years ago, which was expensive then. And after the first semester, my dad had called me and said, you know, we can't afford this. You got to come home. You got to transfer to UB. You got to live at home. Can't do it. So I called my mom freaking out and she's like, we just got the tuition bill. We'll figure it out. And then second semester, same thing happens. Third semester, same thing happens. And I realized that it's going to keep happening so I can stop worrying about it. But when I chose that I wasn't going to pursue acting professionally as my full-time job, I said, you know what, I'm going to go work in finance and help other families play the college financial aid game so that their kids don't have to go through the stress that I went through. So I became a financial advisor. I went to work for a Fortune 500 company, which no longer exists because it got bought out a couple times. And I got all my license, securities licenses. First day back from training, branch manager says, I got you a book where all your clients are going to come from your entire career. 
I said, awesome, man. I'm 20-something. I'm going to go buy a Ferrari. I'm going to be rich. You're going to be great. And he hands me the phone book. Literally, your listeners, if they're not old enough, they can Google what a phone book is, a yellow page is. And he said, you know, they're all in there, Tiger. Go get them. Go make 300 cold calls a day and build a business. And I didn't know any better. So I interrupted strangers all day, every day asking for money, which is not very much fun. Until eventually, my magic business is what saved me from that because I was still being a professional magician as a side hustle, we would call it now. And I saw in a magic trade journal, a full page ad for a marketing course for magicians. I didn't have the money because again, I was cold calling. So I borrowed, I asked my parents to combine my birthday, Hanukkah, every other holiday in a year and buy me the course. And they don't have to buy me any other presents the rest of the year. They said, yes, they bought me the course. I implemented it. And in 30 days, I was the busiest, most expensive magician in Western New York. So it totally worked. I used my critique certificate to talk to the guy whose course it was, whose name is Dave D, who's now chief marketing officer of No BS Inner Circle. And I said, would this work in my real job as a financial advisor? He said, yes, it would. I said, where'd you learn it? He said, the two words that changed my life. He said, Dan Kennedy. So I started buying Dan Kennedy books, Dan Kennedy tapes, Dan Kennedy products. Dan's the godfather of direct response marketing for your listeners who don't know. 21 best-selling books on the topic, highest paid marketing consultant on the planet. And I started learning stuff from Dan and started trying to apply it in my business. I married my sweetheart. So a year goes by and I went to her and I said, honey, 12 months ago, we got married. Nine months ago, we bought our first house. Three months ago, we had our first baby. And a month ago, you quit your job to be a stay-at-home mom and I'm the breadwinner and I'm cold calling. But I need to go borrow more than our mortgage to go hire this guy. And she said, no. And I asked her again every day for 30 days in a row and your listeners can insert whatever profanity they want in her responses and they'd probably be not far off because I'm persistent. And day 31, she said, you better pray this works. So I went to work with Dan and in two years, he took me from the 6,699th ranked advisor at that company. So I was one up from the bottom. There were 6,700 advisors to the top 30 nationwide for opening new accounts. And I was competing against people who had been building books of, clients for twice as long as I'd even been alive. So I was written about a company newsletter. I was written about in the largest trade journals in our industry. I was written about in a couple of best-selling books in our industry. And this was all pre-internet. This was all direct mail. And phone starts ringing of advisors who said, I want to be you when I grow up. And I said, I'm 20, you're 40, but okay. And, or you're 60. And I, they said, how do I do it? And I faxed Dan and because he only communicates by fax. And I said, what do I do? And he said, you start a marketing company and do it for him. So I said, okay. And I let one advisor hire me and I gave him one marketing campaign that we did and let him license it and use it in his town to test it. It worked. And I had a business, a second one. So I said, this is really going to work. This is a real company. That was 12 years ago. That's marketdominationllc.com. We've gone from just me and one client to an awesome team of about 33 people right now. And we've served thousands and thousands of clients literally all over the globe. We've driven over 30 million prospects. We've done several thousand marketing campaigns, produced over 80 different podcast shows. And it's been an incredible roller coaster of ups and downs along the way. Can you talk about at that time, because I want to go on the trajectory and talk about a bunch of different marketing stuff, but at that time, when you were a financial advisor, the first things that you learned from Dan Kennedy that fundamentally changed 
the way you were marketing, what you were doing, and that just radically catapulted your ranking among the financial advisors. If you were to distill down to a few key principles at that moment that you just implemented that had that big of an effect, what would they be? Okay. So first one is direct response copywriting, the words that actually sell and get people to take action, which I've spent you know, a decade and a half studying and become really, really good at. And I would say, I'll give you one example. I had had an existing marketing campaign before Dan that I had gotten, you know, from an industry vendor and it was a retirement planning seminar. You know, you mail out 10,000 invitations to strangers and offer them a free dinner. And some of them will show up to hear your sales pitch. Some of them will show up for the free food and that's it. We call those plate lickers. And some of them will become clients. I had done this campaign and it completely flopped and it didn't work. I think the headline was like nine biggest retirement planning mistakes. And I said, Dan, you know, I just spent all this money and it totally flopped. And he said, well, I could give you the easy answer and tell you what you did wrong. Or why don't you survey some of the people, physically call them and ask them if they remember the invitation and ask them why they didn't respond. Survey your non-responders, which is a marketing lesson right there. So I did. And the overwhelming response I got was, nine retirement planning mistakes, son, I've made 27. I could teach that class. I've made 11. I don't need to come. And the copywriting lesson was I changed the headline. So it wasn't nine biggest retirement planning mistakes. It was how to overcome the nine biggest retirement planning mistakes. So we mailed it again and magically it worked. So that would be lesson number one. It's all about the words that sell. And then lesson number two is all about the lead magnet. What are you giving people to get them to qualify themselves, raise their hand, give you their contact information and say, yes, I'm interested in what you have to offer. And they identify themselves. So the first thing we wrote was a long form report. Now you would call it an ebook, except it was physical. 15, 20 pages long, how to overcome the seven biggest mistakes affluent families, Western New York families make when working with a financial advisor was the original title. We did several different versions of it, depending on the target market. But that was the first one. We drove response with direct mail, multi-step direct mail. They called an 800 number because there was no internet. They left their information on the 800 number on the message. And then we mailed them out. And that's what started it. Right. And then from there, how did that then evolve? Once you decided to start the company to help other people do what you were doing. So first you tested something and you figured out a system that worked for you. And then you started basically selling the system to other people that were non-competitors because they were in other markets, but basically in the same space so they could replicate your success that you had. And then how did the business evolve from there? Sure. So that's exactly how it started. So we started off just helping financial advisors because it's what I did and what I knew. And it's still half of our business. But what happened was other people would see the marketing and ask us if we could do it for them. So, hey, we, got, we started getting phone calls. So, for example, I got phone calls from people in my own practice as a financial advisor that we had invited to seminars who said, my brother's my advisor. I don't need a financial advisor, but I own a business. That's how I have money. And your marketing is really, really good. I haven't seen anything like that. Could you do that in my business? Dan, what do I do? And he said, do it. So I said, sure, let's test it. Let's find out, you know, your butcher, baker, candlestick maker, you know, whatever industry you're in, marketing principles are the same. Delivery might be different. Messaging might be different. Offers might be different, but the principles are all the same. So let's apply those principles to your business. See if it works. Magically, it does. 
your business starts growing and then we go in that industry and say, okay, now I want 27 butchers and 57 candlestick makers to, because I got something that works in that industry and I can keep replicating that one. Right. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, over time, so 12 years ago till now, the marketing landscape has, of course, radically changed in terms of the mediums, in terms of where people's attention is, in terms of how to get people's attention, how to communicate with them. And all of those things have changed dramatically. But can you talk about what has not changed in terms of the principles and the fundamentals of an effective marketing campaign that has been true for all 12 years? It's been true. The same principles have been true for all time. It's not just my 12 years. So the combination of you've got to have the right message, you've got to have the right target market, you've got to have the right media that they prefer to be reached in, you've got to communicate why you are different, and you've got to have a system that puts all that together, that delivers the right message to the right person the right way with the right follow-up system to get them to take the right action. So those principles and the reasons why people buy or don't buy, the reasons why that human behavior, human the math has changed because the media has changed. You know, click-through rate didn't exist 15 years ago that much. Um, it wasn't a common household metric as much, but response to direct mail was. So the math may have changed, but the behavioral psychology, which is the most fascinating part to me of why people do what they do and how to get them to do what you want, that's stayed the same. So if you were to give advice to, let's say, people that are in the early stage of their business building, right? How would you encourage them to think about marketing at the early stage of an entrepreneurial venture? Because a lot of times things are very overwhelming, meaning that there's people that are doing effective marketing on tons of different channels. I mean, there's people that are killing it on YouTube or killing it on Instagram or killing it on, you know, email marketing or killing it on like any of these other and things. no one was killed during the production of this episode, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> but there's obviously a lot of channels that can be very successful. And you look at all these people that are very successful doing all of these very disparate things. How does a business owner develop, and, and I'm talking about here specifically the early stage of an entrepreneurial venture, how do they develop a marketing plan that is best for them and their business? How do they think about that? Okay, so that's a great question. So the most important thing to think about, which will be 50% of the success or failure of your any campaign, is the target market. It's the who. Who are you going after? If you nail that, everything else works. Everything else will make be much easier. So I would spend half my time figuring out who I'm going after and then the other half the time, and then they'll inform what message, what media you use. So I wouldn't go try and do Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, you know, Snapchat all at once. I would pick one target market, one message, and that will resonate with them in one form of media and get really good at communicating that message to that market on that media until you've got something really profitable. And then you could expand to other forms of media if your target market warrants it. If you're selling quilting patterns to 87-year-old arthritic widows, Snapchat's probably not going to be the place where you're going to advertise. You're never going to, you're not going to start there. You're not going to end there. However, ads in Quilters magazine might be perfect. Right. Facebook ads in front of that page because they also watch their grandkids on Facebook might be perfect. And so what should be the thought process for distilling down and honing and narrowing your target market? If you're a business owner, how do you think about doing that effectively? Okay, so I can answer that best with an example. 
So we represent a lot of professional practices because financial services is one. And again, it was the easiest place to branch out to in the beginning. So meet a dentist. He comes in early stages of our marketing career and says, you know, first question we ask at any marketing consultation is who is your target market? And he says, I'm a dentist. I can help anybody with teeth. And I say, hang on, doc. Let me pull out my cell phone, call every single person in my contacts, ask them if they still have teeth, and then send them your way. And he goes, okay, okay, I get it. That's not really how it works. And I said, okay, so let's narrow it down. So we analyzed his patient base, who pays the most, who refers the most, who's happiest, who he likes working on, who's the most profitable. And we ultimately find out that his real ideal patient, after some deep dive analysis, is actually a 40 to 50-year-old affluent suburban woman who's gotten divorced in the last six months, is starting to date again, is terrified of competing against younger women, wants to do something to improve her appearance, but doesn't want plastic surgery. That's a tightly defined niche market that we can then sell to $25,000 divorce smile makeovers. We closed his practice for six months and remodeled it so it looks like a spa. You sit in a massage chair when you get your work done. You get a mani-pedi while your teeth are getting worked on. There's aromatherapy. There's soft music. There's candles. You feel like you're at a high-end spa. You're drinking mimosas. You get picked up in a limo. You have to bring a friend with you. So then they sit there all day and go, I want that. You get a image consultation with a stylist. She goes and picks out three new outfits for you. You get a photo shoot with a photographer for your new dating sites that you're going to be on in your new outfit. It's an entire experience. He works four days a week instead of six. He does one or two a day. He makes eight times as much money in less than half the time as he used to. He's insanely profitable. He's got a waiting list. So you nail the target market and you can reinvent your entire business and explode it. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit now about networking because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of people that will listen to or follow a whole bunch of influencers and think they're really inspiring and interesting and all that kind of stuff and be very intimidated or basically not even be intimidated, but just basically have it out of their mind that they should even attempt to interact with these people or engage with them or if, or if they were to, like how would they do it or how would they do it in any kind of meaningful way and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of your career trajectory, you've been able to engage with and develop relationships with, including very substantive business relationships with very high level people in your space. You have met, you know, and in many cases you've interviewed extensively, in some cases even done business with a lot of the tippy top names in your space, the top marketers in the world. And that was based out of your proactive efforts to go and network with those people. And I want to ask you about the specifically about networking up. And when you have people that are, you know, celebrity level, if you want to call it that in your space, whosever space it is that they're, that they're in business in, Maybe you can even start with some stories. Just, I mean, I would be interested to just hear how you connected with Kevin Harrington, who people know from Shark Tank, right? I mean, he was one of the original sharks on Shark Tanks with Mark Cuban and, you know, all of those folks. Maybe let me just start with that. And then we can backtrack to some of the principles and some of the other stuff that you've done. But how did you initially connect with and build the business relationship and start co-hosting the Sharkpreneur podcast with Kevin Harrington? 
Sure. So huge Shark Tank fan, obviously. Got a phone call probably six years ago now from a friend of mine and BNI, which is another networking organization, who says, hey, did you know? So it was a referral. He said, hey, did you know that Kevin Harrington is coming to Buffalo to speak? And I said, nobody comes to Buffalo to speak. What are you talking about? And he said, oh, there's some entrepreneurs organization, regional conference celebrating the 20th or whatever year anniversary. And he's the keynote speaker. I said, what's EO? Didn't know what it was. Found it. Found out it was open to the public for that conference. $300 a ticket. Bought a ticket. I had scheduled eight meetings for that day. I rescheduled them all so I could go. I went to the event. Very cool. Saw Kevin speak. He's in the back selling autograph and books, taking pictures for social media. And I'm in line. I'm like, if I just ask for a picture, I don't stand out at all. Everyone wants a picture. I'm a marketing guy. I got to come up with something. Think, 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 think. It's my turn. Inspiration strikes. I say, Mr. Harrington, I'm here to take you to the airport. (laughs) And this was pre-Uber, by the way. And he says, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to take a cab. And I said, no, I insist. Let me take you to the airport. And he said, okay, but I've got two meetings first. Why don't you come with me and be a fly on the wall? Watch me work. And then you can take me to the airport. And I said, hell yes, I would love to. And, you know, I'm sitting there in the meetings and watching him do his thing. And I'm texting my wife, you know, honey, I'm going to take Kevin Harrington to the airport. I'm nervous. Like I'm shaking a little bit. This is super exciting. And she says, in your car? And I said, well, it is Buffalo. I can't rent a Bentley by the hour. And she said, will you go clean your car? And, you know, we have three little kids. um, And so it's a little messy. And I said, I'm supposed to be in the meeting. And I'm sitting next to him. She said, say, you have to go to the bathroom. Go clean your car or at least throw everything in the trunk. I said, okay, fine. When you're right, you're right. So I cleaned my car. I went back, watched the meetings, drove him to the airport, drove very slowly to the airport, which since he's heard me tell my version of this story, he now gives me a hard time about. He didn't realize I was driving slow at the time because he didn't know where airport was in Buffalo. So had 25 minutes to pitch him on the way to the airport talked to him. He said, okay, you got me interested. Send me what you want to send me. Here's my address. Mail it to me. So I mailed him a shock and awe box, which is another marketing conversation, another lesson. I mailed him a shock and awe box that had a DVD player in it with a custom message from me to him, which his secretary interrupted his board meeting to hand to him because she said, you got to see this is the coolest thing ever. And it's like an ATA aluminum flight case. It looks like the kind the president would carry the bomb codes in. They open it. They watch the video. He calls me from the meeting, from his cell, going, she just interrupted me. I'm not happy about that, but this is really cool, and I will call you when I get off the plane. Like, awesome. So that led to some consulting work for his company, and then we got hired to do work. He's got so many portfolio companies that he's invested in. We've done work for his angel investors network. He sent Essing on TV products to us to market to do digital tests before he does an infomercial. And then we speak at Pitch Tank is one of his events, the live version of Shark Tank that happened three or four times a year. I was asked to be a judge on that show. So I'm one of the judges who narrows down the applications to the live participants, to the finalists that he then, that he and Steve Forbes and John Mackey from formerly from Whole Foods will pick the winner of. And then, so we speak at that event together several times a year. We also speak at some other conferences like this one. And he said, like a year and a half ago, what are you doing that's really sexy right now? I explained our done for you podcast into book into authority maker program. He didn't need the book or the authority maker part, but he said, I want a podcast. I don't want to do any work. And I said, I've already got a successful show. Why don't you come on my show, be my co-host, and we'll rebrand it around 
you know, your brand and Shark Tank and stuff. And we came up with Sharkpreneur and he said, sign me up. So that was about a year and a half ago. And he and I do an episode together about once a week. And then I will do additional, an additional episode or two myself, still from the original show, but now under the Sharkpreneur brand. That's an amazing story. And I want to go deeper on a couple points. So you were able to get his undivided individual attention by offering to drive him to the airport. So for that 30-minute ride or whatever it was, you had his undivided attention. He would, I, we, I joked that I kidnapped Kevin Harrington. He was stuck in my car for as slow as I could drive and still let him get there to make his flight. So yes, he was a prisoner. He had no choice but to pay attention. Right. So I'm not suggesting you kidnap any celebrities, but it did work. <laughs> and in fact, after I dropped him off at the airport, I went back to the conference where David Meerman Scott was speaking, who's the best-selling author of The New Rules of Marketing and PR. And he was also in the back signing books. And I said, maybe lightning will strike twice. Mr. Scott, I'm here to take you to the airport. <laughs> and he said, oh, great. I was going to take a cab. Thank you so much. Let me finish signing autographs and I'll, t- and I'll go with you. Got another 20, 30 minutes. He said, okay, send me what you got. Send him a shock and awe box. He promptly called me back and said, listen, I teach all organic inbound marketing and PR. I can't do this. It would be incongruent with my brand, but I love what you're doing. If I was teaching anything else, I would totally do it. But I love what you sent. Stay in touch. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, okay. So then I went home and took a nap. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So with Kevin, I got to go a little bit deeper on this. So with Kevin Harrington, when you get someone's full undivided attention like that, and you're able to, we're using the word pitch to them. I want you to talk about exactly what an effective pitch to a person like Kevin Harrington is. If somebody is able to pitch and get the attention of someone that is well above them in terms yes, of- Yes, he's got a few more zeros on the end of his net worth than I do. In terms of their level, but they're able to pitch that person what does pitch mean? What type of pitch should you do? How should you think about it? How should you formulate it? What did you say to Kevin Harrington? Okay. So, and I've done this not with rides to the airport, but I've done the celebrity pitch many times. And there's two things I found that work the best. In Kevin's case, I had, when I saw that he was coming, my entire team and I went through and analyzed everything we could find online. So we went to SCNONTV.com, which he used to own before he sold it. We bought a bunch of different products from that website to see what the funnel for like for um, wasn't called it back then, but the funnel was. We wanted to see what the follow up sequences were, what the delivery was. We want we went through everything, and we prepared a pretty in depth presentation of what we thought at the time were twelve holes in the as seen on TV marketing funnel that we could fix that would add about 20% increase in sales and profitability. So the pitch in the car was, we took a look at, here's what I do. Here's what we do. Here's who I am. Here's what we did. Here's what we came up with. I'd love to send you our analysis of what those 12 holes are and how we could fill it. And I told him what one was in the car to give him an example. And he said, you are right. We're not doing that. We should be doing that. Yes, I want to know what the other 11 are and how you would fix them. Awesome. And he said, 20%, you got my attention. Amazing. Amazing. So I think what's important there is that you did your research. Yes. 
on how you could help and add value to him. Yes. And the other thing, the other pitch that I've had done that has worked very well in the celebrity level space is usually most of them will have a charitable cause that they are very passionate about. So we will research that and that fundraising funnel. And I have offered for numerous folks like that to say, hey, I noticed, you know, I really love the work that you're doing for XYZ found for your foundation or whatever and the mission that you're on. I'd love to do a fundraiser for that. I'd love to help you raise money for that. I think here are some ideas on how we could help raise money for that. You know, is it okay if we do that? And of course, they always say, yeah, oh my God, I'd love for you to help raise money for my charitable mission. Right, right. Now, you also, so I think that's really, really significant in terms of approaching someone of that caliber. Because not all of them care about the money anymore. Right. In terms of understanding what at, what would add value to this person and be in their interest and then being able to research that and present something to them that I have really studied what's important to you. And here's how I could think that I could add value to something that's important to you is the framework. Yes. And then if you can do that effectively and you put the time and work into that and deliver that, that is the pitch framework. Yeah, absolutely. Like we saw Sir Richard Branson last night and I'm friend, Roland Ryan and Perry of Digital Marketer, our friend who are putting on the conference are friends of mine. So I know that the way they got him here is they wrote a multiple six-figure check to his charitable foundation in exchange for which he came and was here for two days. And the way they wrote the money without, wrote the check without having to write it was they sold admission to a dinner the night before where 20 people, I think it was 10 or 20 people got to have dinner with Richard, Sir Richard if they were each willing to write a $15,000 check. So they all bought seats at the table and Ryan Roland Perry got in for free and got him to speak for free in essence by outsourcing, crowdsourcing, getting the other 10 or 20 people to write these several hundred thousand dollar check to his charity so that he would do it. That is brilliant. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit more? You, you alluded to a number of things as you told your Kevin Harrington story, and I want to go deeper on a couple of them. One of them was you referenced the shock and awe box marketing technique that you used with Kevin. And I know you've used that with other people as well. Can you explain that marketing strategy and how it works? Sure. We're kind of famous for it. So let's, you can even do it in a local, I did it as a financial advisor. So let's say somebody had requested my lead, my, my magnet, my free report. They think they're just going to get the free report in the mail. Manila envelope, glossy paper, just a regular old brochure on steroids. So instead of that, we would send them a large box of some kind with a ton of other stuff in it. So it has shock. Hey, I didn't know you were going to do this. And awe, I can't believe you did this. So we will always include food that is non-perishable. So we're in Buffalo. So we send like anchor wing sauce. We send Buffalo food packages with it. Whether, you know, if it's, hey, here's some popcorn. Here's a cup of tea. Here's some coffee. Watch this and have your popcorn. We will always send a video. We have historically done DVD players because not everybody has a DVD player anymore. Your computer may not have a DVD slot. So we send the player, which 20 bucks. So we will put a ton of, we will put all of my book, my seven best-selling books are in the box. There will be a sales letter. There will be supporting materials. There will be swag. So, I mean, we've themed the box in different ways, depending on who we were getting it to, along with the gifts that go in it. We've sent giant bowling pins. We've sent autographed baseball bats by major league teams of their team. We've 
to win a bet with you. I mailed a watermelon from Buffalo to California to Los Angeles. So, I mean, if you put enough postage on it, you can send anything. Yeah. And that's really like, so when you're going for those really premium clients and you're really trying to go upstream and get a high profile person's attention by sending something that's just going to outrageous, outrageous, that's going to stand out and blow their mind, you're going to have their attention. Yeah, because you got to get through the clutter. They get 8,000 pieces of mail a day. They have three secretaries that are all gatekeepers that are going to throw out whatever, anything that looks normal. You have to do something to absolutely stand out, whether it's the way that you're talking to them and what you're offering, whether it's a ride to the airport or a six-figure charity check or what you're sending them in the mail to get a phone call. Right. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. So let me ask you this. You have on your podcast interviewed a number of extremely successful, financially successful, high-profile thought leaders, business leaders, marketing leaders in the space, including billionaires like Steve Forbes and other people that you have met, you know personally, you've spent time with them, you've been able to interview them and go deeper into a whole series of different things. Yep, got to hang out with Steve Forbes on his 70th birthday. That was pretty cool. Sing happy birthday to him. (laughs) That's amazing. Can you talk about what you have learned or taken away from interviewing people of that caliber, the mega multimillionaire or billionaire level entrepreneurs, business owners, particularly the people that that created and made that, you know, didn't come from that, but created and made that. What types, if any, of sort of commonalities or themes in terms of traits or attributes or habits or practices, what do you notice about those caliber of successful individuals? That could fill a book and probably should, but I'll give you a couple. So they all have had a, and we don't always talk about this on the podcast, sometimes it's pre-show, but they all have had a morning routine that gets them in a optimal emotional state before they do any actual work. Because who you are affects how well what you do works, which Dr. Corey Malnikoff is one of my favorite quotes from him. So if you're in a lousy state when you are writing marketing copy or when you're talking to someone that radiates, all marketing is transference of emotion. So if I'm not excited about what I'm doing, you're not going to be excited about it. So I've got to think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and act like it for you to believe me. So they all get in an optimal state first thing in the morning. And then they all think differently, differently in terms of they're not necessarily worried about in the weeds, tactical, day-to-day, stressful or whatever stuff. They're thinking bigger picture, 
they're thinking on a much higher level and making decisions from that place as opposed to, hey, there have been times when you and I were both like, how do I pay the rent this month? How do I pay the mortgage when we were starting out? My wife quit, you know, quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like, her income vanished. And I wasn't making anything when she quit. So, and I had a new baby and a new house. So that creates some stress. And then when you think from that place, you create results from that place. But when you're thinking about like Brian Tracy's zero-sum thinking or Grant Cardone or Steve, for, you know, 10X thinking, like I'm thinking, how do I increase my business 20%? How do I increase it 20 times? You have to think totally differently, which opens you up to a whole new level of spiritual energy, emotional energy, and success. Can you talk a little bit about actually Pitch Tank now as well, which is, you know, that you got into that um, through the Kevin Harrington relationship and through that you've met Steve Forbes and you've met a lot of these types of people. Can you explain, because a lot of listeners I'm sure are familiar with the television show Shark Tank. They've either seen it or watched it or at least they're familiar with what it is. But can you explain what Pitch Tank is and then talk about kind of what your role has been there and what you've seen and experienced and learned from it? Sure. So Pitch Tank is a live version of Shark Tank. It's in person. So the lot we do it several times a year. The largest one is every July in Las Vegas. And that one, there will be about 2,000 people in the room. And we will have received several thousand entrepreneurial applications of people who want to pitch for funding. And we will narrow that down to about 25 who get to come to Vegas. They will pitch in a preliminary round. I will be one of the judges. I am one of the judges of that preliminary round. I and my two other judges will narrow it down to the top five. And then those five will pitch on stage in front of the 2,000 people and Steve Forbes, John Mackey, Kevin Harrington, Bernd Ullman, and Greg Ryder. And then they will decide who the winner is. And it happens live in front of a couple thousand people. It's a lot of fun. And then what will happen is because a lot of those 2,000 people are investors and they're coming for this, a lot of those companies, even the ones who don't necessarily win first place, will get funded. People will say, I mean, we've had, I mean, we've raised over $200 million doing Pitch Tank. We've had people, they will have a booth at this convention. Every company that's pitching will have a booth. So it's a lot of fun. It's like a live version of Shark Tank. And I've learned a lot from the thousands and thousands of applications we've received, from the hundreds and hundreds of pitches we've taken live and seeing who wins. I've learned a lot about how you should pitch if you're looking for investment capital, which applies to pitching anything really, pitching a product. I've learned a lot about how you resonate with a large disparate market. So 2,000 people all from different backgrounds, all with different desires, different fears, different investing histories in the room, and you've got less than five minutes to make them want to write you a check. Can you speak to, I want to basically speak to two things. The first one is, so you've been in two different spaces. Like you and I have both made business decisions to build our businesses and bootstrap our businesses instead of going out and trying to raise investment capital Correct. for our businesses. Correct. You've also been in spaces like Pitch Tank, obviously, where people are trying to raise investment capital for their businesses. Yes. Can you talk about, first of all, how should a business owner, an entrepreneur, think about whether they 
want to try to bootstrap their business or whether they should be going the route of trying to raise investment capital and how that initial decision should be thought about? Sure. It depends on what the business is. So for example, I started the marketing firm with no money and I could do it. I delivered the first service myself and did the manual labor myself and kept doing it until I couldn't fit it in my schedule anymore and had to start hiring people, which was out of revenue. So I started with zero and worked my way up. The same financial services industry, I had a Fortune 500 company backing me, but my paycheck went away, was very low to start and decreased every three months until it went to zero in 12 and I was 100% commission. So in terms of how do you decide if you're bootstrapping, there are businesses where you can do it because it doesn't take anything except sweat equity to build in the beginning. There are businesses where you couldn't do it that way. So for example, one of our pitch tank success stories, a gentleman who raised a million dollars from a single conversation was, I will explain this badly because I am not a biogeneticist, whatever the heck it is, but it is a new chromosomal DNA test that detects cancer super early, so it saves lives. It will detect fetal abnormalities in pregnant mothers and tell them what's wrong with their baby sooner than normal amniocentesis. And it will tell you if you miscarried, it can identify why so that you can decide if you should have another baby and if so, how to prevent it from happening again. So that requires a ton of medical R&D. He couldn't, Dr. Babu, who founded that company, could come up with the idea, but he couldn't go test that to the point where Quest Labs would buy it without money. And unless he was sitting on millions of dollars, he couldn't fund it himself. So he's got to raise investment capital. There's another company from Pitch Tank that is putting, has invented a new type of tablet for your hotel room. So no more remote, no more messing around on the TV, tablet to order dinner, tablet to order room service, tablet to get parking, tablet to view the city and see what things you want to do. It's really, really cool. They have like tens of thousands of hotel rooms that now have this tablet that the hotel patrons absolutely love and use. And he's got to manufacture these things. So unless he's got the money, he's going to need investment capital to pull it off. Whereas if you were starting a chiropractic business, you need an office, you need tables, you need equipment, you might need money. But there are information businesses or other service businesses or other virtual things that you could completely do with no or very limited investment to the point where a small credit card would take care of it. Right. So if someone is starting or building or scaling a company that they do want to seek investment capital and they do want to go pitch for venture capital or they want to get angel investors, all that kind of stuff, based on all of the stuff that you've seen and reviewed and judged and evaluated, and if you were to distill down, what advice or what are a couple tips that you would give to business owners that make a great, compelling pitch deck if they're trying to raise investment capital? So Kevin actually has something called 10 Steps to the Perfect Pitch, that you can Google that is available for free as a download that will do a much better job of this than I will because he's taken a lot more pitches than I have. But I will say elements to a perfect pitch, you have to start with a pattern interrupt. If you have to get their attention 
and your brain, your reticular activating system is constantly trying to filter out everything, all the data that's coming at it. So you're filtering out everything you think you already know. So you can discount it and not pay attention to it. So a pattern interrupt would be something that stops you in your tracks and makes you consider what's in front of you. So whether that's something that makes you stop scrolling on your Facebook newsfeed or it gets an investor's attention, you have to start with identifying what problem you solve in such a way that it gets someone to say, oh, I haven't heard this before. So what's different about what you're doing? And then you have to make them realize the scope of the problem, that this is a real problem, that people will pay to solve it, and that you've made some progress, hopefully, in terms of getting people to pay to solve, pay you to solve their problem. So you have to kind of interrupt them, tease them, and then please them with how much money they can make investing in this program. And then how is that going to impact their life and how many other lives will be affected by their decision? Because for, depending on how successful the investor is, they may not care as much about the money anymore. The money is a bonus. They care more about the mission. Like with Dr. Babu, people, if you, you're literally saving lives. That's a pretty hard pitch to beat. One of the previous winners of Pitch Tank was two college kids who their friend had was a football player and died on the football field of a heart attack in high school, not knowing, you know, cause there was no defibrillator on the field and he had a heart condition, irregular heartbeat. No one knew about. So they invented a portable electronic defibrillator that would run off your iPad battery, iPhone battery, and is the size of like a water bottle. So literally it could be in every coach's bag. And if only this existed, it would save all these lives. And you're like, how do I not write a check for that? You had mentioned when I was asking you about all of these incredibly successful people that you're interacting with and what you're observing about their habits and practices, you had mentioned morning routines and you had mentioned a lot of the mental and emotional strategies they use to become get into a present state where they can really be effective in their work. And I want to ask you personally, what do you do in terms of your morning routine and your strategy for dealing with stress and dealing with all of the crazy stuff that bombards us as entrepreneurs every day and just punches us in the gut and takes <laughs> our wind out and is just total raw chaos of being a business owner? How do you manage stress? How do you get into that present state, morning routines or otherwise? What is your practice? Sure. So I don't manage it as well as I'd like. I'm a work in progress. So I will freely admit that. I'd say the best book I've ever read on that topic is called The Perfect Day Formula by Craig Ballantyne of Early to Rise. And I know Craig personally. He's been on the podcast, I think twice. And we've spoken together at events and we've done stuff together. And I've written for his website and so my routine has changed recently because in the last few months, we got a new puppy. So he's actually improved my morning routine because he is forcing me to get up earlier. And in the interest of keeping him quiet and not barking and not waking up my whole house too early in the morning, I am taking him for a walk. On So I've incorporated Tanner, our puppy, into my morning routine. So I'm now doing my incantations I am now doing my affirmations on the walk with, I'm doing my prayer on my walk with Tanner. So I'm in a super happy, optimistic, awesome state when I get back to the house, assuming that he's pretty much behaved on said walk and hasn't driven me crazy. He's a new puppy. And then I will go over my goals. I will go over my day. 
and what's coming. And then I will try, if he lets me, to get at least 15 minutes of a jump start of work done on the most important thing I have to do that day. So I will have my top three things that don't require somebody else because they're not going to be, I'm not going to talk to them when everybody else in my house is sleeping. So it can't be a phone call. But if there's something, my top three priorities that I need to work on, if I can get a jump start on that before everybody else wakes up and he chills out after his walk, it's a bonus. Can you say what you mean by affirmations and incantations and how you structure or choose those for yourself for a morning routine? Sure. So best resource on that, in my opinion, is Tony Robbins. He is the master at that. That's where I learned. I've learned it from a number of places, but his is by far the best in my own personal opinion. So an affirmation would just be something that you say in your head over and over and over again that's positive, that moves you towards your goal. So that could be something as simple as like every day in every way I am better and better. The Emile Coué formula from the 1900s. Or it could be like, I am healthy, I am successful, I am financially abundant, I attract money to me as a magnet, you know, whatever that is, whatever those positive statements are. The difference between an affirmation and incantation is an incantation is the next level because it has to be said out loud, it has to be said with strong emotion, and you have to put movement with it. Because, as Tony says, one of the best ways to change your emotional state really fast is to change the way you're breathing and change the way you're moving your body. Because, and he will say this at every seminar and in every interview, is if you are depressed, do you know how to stand to be depressed? Have you ever been depressed? Sure, we all have. So do you stand with your shoulders back or do you stand slouch forward? You're slouched forward. Are you taking deep breaths? You're breathing shallow. You're breathing shallow. Are you looking down or looking up? You're looking down, et cetera. So you know the pattern to put your body in to feel depressed. Contrary, you already know the pattern to be feeling amazing. But we tend to make the not most resourceful choice is to how we don't even realize we're doing it. But if you change the way you're breathing, the way you're moving and what you're focusing on and you do it the right way, you can put yourself in any positive state you want. I don't do it as often as I like, but I try and do it a lot. Do you have a, I'm going to call it like a, a recovery or a rebound practice because I feel like for me, like in business, like just being an entrepreneur, like you just get punched in the gut mm-hmm. or punched in the eye or like whatever you want to call it metaphorically. Yes. Like on pretty much a daily basis, it's like you can walk into the office and like, oh yeah, I'm feeling good. Like I'm all this kind of stuff. And then you just get an email. Yes. Or you just get something and just like the entire wind just yes. gets knocked Hit out the of you yep. and you're just like, oh, you know, I like, have made that sound effect. <laughs> so like, but like, then you realize you're like, oh, but, but I have these meetings and then I have this podcast interview. I got to be on top of my game for, and I have these employees I need to inspire. And yep. like, I have all this other stuff. So like when you have that gut punch, Thing, which occurs to any business owner on a very yes. recurring basis. It took me a long time to learn. I thought I was abnormal. I thought it was just me that I was screwing up. And I was like, this sucks. And when I finally got into masterminds and stuff like that, I started, I realized everybody has that problem. I'm like, oh, I'm not crazy. I thought I was doing it wrong. You know, Dr. Corey said to me a couple months ago, he's like, this was, he came to speak at my mastermind group and we were talking about goal setting and morning routines and I had asked the question personally for my own benefit, but also for everybody in the group, you know, how do you deal with the anxiety of being an entrepreneur? 
I'm like, because I'm self-medicating, too much wine, too many pills, like don't always do the most resourceful way to handle that. And he goes, he totally reframed it for me. He said, if you are an entrepreneur and you don't have anxiety, you're not pushing hard enough. And I said, damn, that's a reframe. So I will give myself five minutes, gut punch. I will take five minutes to wallow and feel the negativity, the panic, the fear, the oh, beep, emotion, the what am I going to do now? I needed that money, whatever it was. And then after five, I will set a five-minute timer and go, okay, you can wallow for five minutes, and then you got to do something to snap out of it, which I will get up, I will move, and then go, I got to reset, I got to focus on everything that's awesome, and I got to ask myself an empowering question. You know, the quality of your emotional state is determined by the questions you're asking yourself. So I will ask myself, like, I will try. I'm not perfect at this. Like, where's the gift in this? What can I learn from this? How could Napoleon Hill would say in every adversity is a seed of an equivalent or greater benefit and thinking you're rich? What is amazing about this? Why is this? Why did I attract this to myself right now? Like I will try and ask myself a series of positive questions to get myself out of that state. It doesn't always work because I don't do it perfect every time, but I try and do it as well as I can. And most of the time, it at the very least, it significantly helps. I've had some serious gut punches that cost you know, six figures and more. So amen. Haven't we all, or anybody that's in business that plans to be for a long time, they certainly it's will coming. if they haven't yet. It's coming. So prepare for it. But but that's actually something that I talk to entrepreneurs about is prepare your rebound, you know, that's regimen. A, I wish I had thought of that years ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because it is coming and it will also come again, even if it has come. Let me ask you about this in terms of your strengths and your weaknesses. All entrepreneurs have super, I think, strengths in, you know, one or sometimes more than one if they're really lucky areas, right, where they can really excel. But no entrepreneur that I've ever met is amazing at every area no, of you running can't be. a business. You just can't be. So how do you approach, how have you over the last 12 plus years approached the sort of self-auditing process of, you know, I'm really good at these things, but man, I am not quite as good at these other things. But I know that those other things need to be done well to run an effective business. How do you approach that? So that has been a journey that I have gone on. So I spent see, the first 10 and a half years of the marketing firm focused all on the marketing. Every book I read was marketing. Every conference I went was marketing. Market, I, I ate, breathed, and slept it all my life. My purpose, I was just always trying to become a better marketer and made some messes along the way because I didn't learn anything about running a business. There's many stories about that. So what I realized about a year and a half ago was I need to start becoming a better leader. I need to start becoming a better manager or hire someone for that. And at the time wasn't going to make the financial commitment to hire someone. So I needed to get good at it. So I started reading management books. I started going to scaling up conferences, started learning from other people. Said, you know what? I'm a pretty darn good marketer. I could probably back off 10 or 20% of those hours and devote them to being a better business owner. So I've done that. I originally thought I should hire people who were good at what I was good at, which is a big mistake because I'm already good at it and it doesn't support me. So I'm working, I've been for the last year and a half hiring people who are good at things that I'm not good at. I'm really a good copywriter and I'm a really good marketing strategist. Here's the overall big picture vision. I'm not the detail guy. 
And it was painful to learn that. But I have now hired people to build systems that sweat the small stuff that take care of every detail who love dotting every I and crossing every T and think a 47-step thing is the greatest thing since sliced bread, which is incredibly helpful, freeing me up to be the visionary as opposed to I should not be personally running anybody's Facebook ads, even though I am good at it. I think that's so important. And I feel like this self-awareness piece is really the quintessential skill that a CEO needs to have, a business owner, entrepreneur needs to have. I learned it the hard way. I wasn't, I didn't, it took me, I was stubborn. It took me a long time to figure it, figure it out. It took a lot of pain to realize that. So if we can save your listeners from avoiding that, that would be a lot of therapy bills. They don't have alcohol. They don't have to buy. Totally true. Right. Which is like understand and acknowledge and give yourself props for what you're good at. Yes. But then also be aware that you need other players to complement you yes. in these other areas. And, and first of all is understanding, are you a business owner, CEO person, or are you more of a COO you know, type person that needs to partner with a CEO type of person? Or yep. who are you in this whole business equation? Yep. I have told my project manager, who will soon be promoted to chief operations officer, that she needs to fire me. I said, you need to finish building what you're building right now and these couple things. And if they work the way they're supposed to, you're going to fire me. I will not be CEO. I want to be CMO. Mm, yeah. I want to market our company. Mm. I don't want to touch anything else. Mm. Interesting. Because it's not, I shouldn't be doing, I shouldn't, and there are probably clients listening to this, but I shouldn't be doing client service. I shouldn't be building funnels, even though I'm really good at it. I shouldn't be scripting videos, even though I'm really good at it. I should be marketing market domination. What is, how would you describe the highest and best use of your time? What are your peak skills and the highest value that Seth Green should be doing? How would you describe that? I should be doing podcast interviews. I should be writing books and I should be creating marketing campaigns that somebody else executes for our firm. Great. And then hiring the people to fill in all of those other roles. Yes. That you're not, you're not doing so that you can put the whole piece of the puzzle together as the business owner. We're pretty close. Yeah. I, I'm, we're, I'm almost free. I'm, we're, I'm very excited about how close we are. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let me ask you this now. You are also married to an amazing, wonderful woman who is also a dear and amazing friend of mine. Shout out to Rebecca. Hi, honey. <laughs> and you have three amazing kids who I have been super fortunate to interact with and hang out with uh, as frequently as I go back to Buffalo to see you guys. And one of the things that I've known about you for many years as a friend and then subsequently after you got married as a husband and then subsequently as a father is that you really prioritize your family. And that means, I mean, I feel like a lot of people would kind of say this or acknowledge this, but I feel like you really execute and deliver this, which is that you really put time and mental and emotional energy and effort into both your marriage, which is now well over a decade. 15 years. 15 years. And, and your kids' lives and raising them and mentoring them in every level, whatever the extracurricular stuff they're into, you are involved with that. You're coaching your kids. You're going to everything they do. You know, you're really, really involved and you've really prioritized that. And I want to ask you about how you 
compartmentalize and manage and structure your time in terms of your passion and desire and prioritization of business success, obviously, and what needs to go into that for any entrepreneur to be successful, but then also the time that you put into, which is which is obvious to me who follows you on Facebook and has known you for many years, both your marriage and raising your kids and how you balance that and choose your allotment of your time. So Barbara Corcoran, also from Shark Tank, once told me that balance is bull beep and that boundaries rule. And she has a work cell phone and a personal cell phone. And when she walks out of the office, she physically turns off her work phone and they cannot get her till the next day. But she's like, no one's going to die. None of her work people have her personal phone. They just can't get her. I haven't gotten to that level yet. I would love to. So Rebecca will sometimes be mad at me because I always answer the phone. And she's like, that's great for his clients. Not so much for us. So like you said, I've coached eight years of every soccer team Max has been on until he's moved up to a more competitive league that is professional coaching. I've been to every, almost every game except when I travel. I, Elle is an actress and I take her to theater and have been to every show and been to Lily's dance and gymnastics recitals. And I mean, you just got to make the time. You just got to prioritize it. I don't know if there's a secret to it. I just try and get home every day by 5 or 5.30 East Coast time. And there are times that our business suffers because of that. And I have often said, I can always make more money. I can't make more time. So I'll never get that they're little. They're 12, 10, and 6 while we're recording this. I'll never get the time back. So if I miss out on a business deal because I'm not going to work till 8 o'clock at night and I want to be at a soccer game, I'll live. I mean, I think what is amazing is the way that you prioritize that and the way that you put effort into all of those familial relationships. And, you know, 15 years into your marriage, you're still doing these. Like, I remember that elaborate, I think it was a Valentine's Day scavenger scavenger hunt gift that you gave Rebecca. And if you want to talk about that, you can. But just the thought and the mental and emotional energy that after a business day, which any business owner knows can be insanely stressful. Yes. How are you able to mentally and emotionally, I guess, refocus and become present with your family when you walk in the door to be excited about what your kids are doing and to be excited about, you know, and thoughtful and just creatively able to do these amazing things for your wife and so forth. How do you switch that gear so you can be not just have the time to sit at your kid's soccer game, but to be present with your family members? Okay. So I don't, Rebecca will tell you, I don't do it perfectly. There are plenty of times when she will remind me, Hey, get out of work mode. Like you're home now. Fortunately and unfortunately, I have a really short commute. Our office building is less than five minutes from my house. So I don't have half an hour in traffic to reset. I'm glad, but it would help. But I'll take the five-minute commute. And so I try and reset on the car ride home. It isn't always enough time. And I try and focus on what's going on at home. I do work at home sometimes. I will do work from home I will, and Rebecca's like, you just got home and you're working. I'm like, well, do you want me physically here and doing some work? Or did you want me to stay at the office for like another hour? She's like, no, 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 you're home. You know, you could help me change, you know, do stuff around the house and I can interrupt you. I'd rather have you home. So it's not perfect, but I do do my best. 
the first eight years of Max's soccer career, I did not sit at any of the games because I was a coach. So I was up and yelling at the players. Now for the, you know, I finally get to sit and watch and it's someone else's problem to get the team to do what they're supposed to do, who's much more qualified than I am in that department. So Ella, I've got some street cred because I have an acting degree from Syracuse, which is one of the top three drama schools in the country. So how do, I mean, I just try and focus and pay attention to what they're doing and put my energy into them or Rebecca. And I try and get all the work done before I get home. I don't always do that. There's probably at least one day a week where I'm doing some work at home before the kid activity. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you are educating your kids about finances and about entrepreneurship. One of the things that's been so exciting and and fun and cute and amazing and inspiring for me to watch is in particular what you've been doing with Ella. And I mean, I don't even want to say anything about it. I just want you to be able to talk about it in terms of, you know, and you can maybe start with just sort of how old she is and the entrepreneurial things that she's doing and that you're doing with her and how you're mentoring her because that's that's really amazing. Okay. So I'm going to back up. I'm going to start with Max because he's the oldest. He's okay. And I started with Max. So when Max was, I can't, maybe six, I don't remember, maybe six, I bribed him to read Think and Grow Rich, which is in my opinion, the greatest business book of all time. I paid him a dollar a page to read it and got in trouble from his first grade teacher because we would do the reading log of the book they're supposed to read every night. And after like the first week, we got a phone call from the school going, he's got the same book listed every single night. Yeah. Doesn't he finish it? Like, isn't he reading Hop on Pop? Like, shouldn't he be moving on to another book? And I had to explain to her, no, he's reading Think and Grow Rich. It's 400 pages, 365 pages. Like, it's going to take a while. And she's a teacher. What's Think and Grow Rich? So... I started him on Think and Grow Rich. Max and Ella both have played Cash Flow, Robert Kiyosaki's board game with me multiple times. And we have the board game app on, their, uh, on his iPad. So he, can, he used to play it on there as well when I wasn't home to play with. So um, Max's first business venture was as an affiliate marketer. He would make YouTube videos reviewing toys and have an Amazon affiliate link. And if people bought, he got a commission. If they didn't buy, he didn't get a commission. He also made videos about what toys were bad. So he had credibility because he would he didn't say buy everything. He would say, I played with this for a day and now it's dumb. So we would post those videos on my wife's blog. Rebecca is a mo- top one of the top 100 mommy bloggers in the country. It's whinypalooza.com. She's got a book coming out shortly, which she doesn't know. Will There's going to be a funnel behind and a pr- more revenue opportunities. Ella is 10. She's our actress, so she loves to perform. So Ella, for the last 70 plus days as we're recording this, so I started, I was in a challenge with Russell Brunson who said, you got to post like a some Facebook Live like every day or you got to blog every day. You got to do something every day. So I chose Facebook Live and I started doing a Facebook Live every day about marketing and I was doing the nine rules of marketing. And on day three, Ella came upstairs. I was hiding in the bedroom recording it. And she came upstairs, walked in, joined, asked if she could join me on the show, joins me on the show and starts commenting. And I was like, dang up, like you've been paying attention. Like she had some really insightful, amazing things to say on episode three. And I said, that's really good. You should stay on the show. So she's like, oh my God, I would love to daddy. So it became the Ella and daddy. It 
It was supposed to be the Daddy and Ella show, but she kind of took it over. It became the Ella and Daddy show because she's 10 and cute. So everybody wants to see her now. I've become the straight man to her comedy act about marketing. And people ask her questions. People hire her. She's gotten clients from it. She's written a children's book that's been published. It's a board book. It's called The Fastest Raindrop. It's at ellaraygreen.com, L-A-R-A-E, green with an E on the end.com. She's just finished up her second book, which we're working on now. She has a Facebook fan page. She's got like 6,000 followers. She has a community of raindrops. She's made a name for them after the raindrop book. And she's had clients hire her to write children's books about their businesses. Even though she wants to be an actress, she's got this nice side hustle. That's amazing. And following in your footsteps because you also yes, started as an actor, started as an actor and were in all the high school plays yes. and went to school for to study drama and business. Yep. She's but, way ahead of me. I mean, she's 10 and she's already had a Broadway, had her first audition for Broadway, which I never even got to. So she's way ahead of me. That was amazing that you took her to New York City to audition for Broadway at age 10. She was nine, nine. Yeah. So we got a call, you know, Hey, they didn't know we weren't in New York, in Manhattan. You know, they didn't know we didn't live there. You know, we'd like Ella to audition for the role of young Anna, you know, in frozen In frozen. And I, you know, we don't live there. Oh, you can send a YouTube video for this submission. And I said, what Rebecca and I talked about and said, she doesn't, they won't get all of her sparkle on a YouTube video. There will be thousands of girls sending in YouTube videos. I'm like, we got to go. So fortunate enough to be able to move all my meetings that Monday, get last minute plane tickets and be able to afford it, jump on it, pull for her from school, fly to Manhattan, fly to, fly to New York, did her audition. She crushed it, did great. And then we spent the rest of the day wandering around Broadway, checking stuff out and then flew home. And even though I don't think she got the part, they never called and said, you got it or you didn't. But we're assuming that she didn't get it because it's been six months she still has a story of it. Nine, I flew to I flew to New York and did a Broadway Broadway day with Daddy, and that you know confidence for that audition. Now every other audition in you know Buffalo, she's like, well, I already auditioned for Broadway, so I'm not really nervous about this anymore. <laughs> so amazing! And can you just give an example because it sounds amazing, but I've seen her local news coverage. Yeah, she's been on TV of her book. Yes that she wrote a children's book and got local news coverage for writing because you helped her to publish the book. Yes, we own a publishing company as well. Uh, and can you talk, because you alluded to in passing that she has gotten paid clients. Can you give an example of one of those? Sure, there's a dog trainer who we have now in another state in Virginia that we have communicated with as she has watched our Facebook Lives and we've asked her for advice about Tanner, our golden retriever puppy. And... She, um, Ella, before we got Tanner, Ella was afraid of dogs. Didn't want a dog. If you asked her, she, when we asked her, she said, no, I do not want a dog. Nobody in our house, they, nobody wanted a dog except Rebecca. Rebecca got a dog. So now Ella is the one who loves Tanner the most, spends the most time with him, has the most bonded to him. And so Miss Andrea said, hey, can you write a book for me about a little girl who was afraid to get a dog, got a dog and loves the dog, and then I can use that and sell that and give that to my families that are considering a dog, but where the kids are scared, and this will make them feel better. So Ella's almost done with that, writing the outline for that book, and then we have to actually finish it and do the illustrations and turn it into another book. So that will be book three. 
That's amazing. That's so amazing. And she's so excited about it too. Like when I tune in, yes. uh, you know, to watch the Ella and daddy show, she is so excited about it. She's into it. She plays the guitar, the, well, she, the musical strums, intro, yes. she plays, sings, the, the intro. sings the intro, but then actually dispenses marketing advice. Yep. There are people on the show you've seen who will ask, I want a guy, I have a question for Ella and will ask her opinion and she will answer. And I'll be like, that was what I would have said, or that was better than what I, I was like, I'll just shut up like and watch. It's amazing. And there are days that I have a gut punch or a stressful day and I don't want to do the show. I'm like I need a day off. And I was like, it's my favorite part of the day, daddy. And I'm like, I can't resist that. I guess I'm doing the show. It's so amazing. Let me ask you this in terms of your entrepreneurial journey, what would be, for example, a, a mistake that you can recollect business-wise that you eventually learned from and grew from. But what what would be, can you share sort of a mistake and then what you learned from it along your journey? I'll give you two, and then I know we've got to wrap up. I'll give you two that both started with gunt punches where we had to turn lemons into lemonade. So we did a marketing consultation. Uh, Someone, he had heard me speak, one of the largest personal injury law firms in a multi-state region. So one of those firms that has commercials on all the time. Nine months back and forth, says you're hired, give me a contract on Monday, get you a check. He would have been our largest client ever. Multiple six-figure contract with performance incentives that could have gone, you know, he's building a new office building. We can move into his office building. He's got space. Dream thing. At the same time, we had recently had our third baby and we're looking for a new house. So Rebecca's... I give numbers to the mortgage broker who tells us this is what you're qualified for. Rebecca goes shopping for houses in that price range. That price range was based on that check coming in. And weeks go by back and forth, emails, phone calls, messages, no check, no check, no contract. Starting to freak out because she wants to put an offer in. So uh, after 30, this is like 30 days later. So I take the day off. I grab a book. I go sit in his office. I tell the secretary, I don't have an appointment. He won't return my calls or my emails. I just need an answer. I got a book. I canceled all my meetings. I'm going to sit here all day. I will sit here for eight hours until I get FaceTime. She gets all huffy, storms into the back, comes back a couple minutes later. He changed his mind. He's not doing it. Got six figure, multiple six figure gut punch. I text, I can't even, I'm screaming in my car. I can't even call Rebecca. I just text her. She goes and drops the kids off at her parents and meets me at home with a bottle of Jack Daniels because she's a wonderful wife. And then I have to tell her, we can't buy that house. It was based on this check, which isn't coming. We're still going to get a nice house, but you got to shop a couple hundred thousand dollars cheaper. So that was not a good day. But the lemon, the lemonade we made was, we realized later he would have been a very difficult client to please. We would have also been in his building. So we, he would have been our landlord. He, and he, be, he was also a lawyer. It would have cost him nothing to sue us and make our life miserable if he wasn't happy. And it would have taken so much time and he would have been such a large percentage of our business. We wouldn't have marketed. We wouldn't have gotten other clients. It would have been way too big a percentage of revenue dependent on one person. So, and too precarious a position to be in. So we learned don't spend the money till the check clears and don't have all too much a percentage of your business tied up in one source of revenue. I will give you one more example. And then I know we got to wrap up our podcast to book service has like 50 plus steps that get done over six months. They used to all be in my head. I used to have to tell each team member every day what to do for every client. 
I didn't always remember where everybody was. The more clients we got, the bigger mess I made, the more pissed off people, both clients and team members I had until I realized I need a system that does all this for me, that does the management. So we hired a software developer. We built something for us that literally tells every employee what to do every day for every client without me having to do it. Never forgets, never misses a step, never, nothing ever slips through the cracks. And that has spun off into multiple separate software companies building that process out for other entrepreneurs. All right. So I want to close out with the lightning round here, Seth. But before we do that, I want you to tell one more story, which is how you sold your house in one day using your marketing techniques. In Western New York, which is not a hot real estate market. In Western New York, which is not a hot real estate market, you literally sold your house in one day by simply applying your marketing techniques. Can you tell that story? Yes, super quick. So I built a Facebook fan page for our house. I did a mil... 20 or 30 posts. Every post was a picture of a different room or a post of the nearby shopping malls or whatever. I ran fan ads to get fans for the house. I ran engagement ads to build up an audience of people who had liked or commented on a post who were all geometrically, geographically in the school district the house was in, but didn't live there. So who had kids, two kids, young ages. So our target market was a young family with one or two kids who wanted to move into the school district who didn't live there yet. And then we did an open house, which was an event on Facebook. We ran event response ad to everybody who was engaged with our page. Real estate broker said she'd never seen anything like it. How did we fill the event, the open house? Normally she sits there by herself or there's a couple of people and we had a crowd standing room only. And we had a bidding war, which in Western New York back then does, didn't happen. And we sold it for over asking. And again, less than 24 hours. That's unbelievable. All right, Seth, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Fire away. The lightning round. Who are the top three marketers today that you would recommend that people follow and pay very close attention to? Dan Kennedy to learn direct response marketing and copywriting from Russell Brunson, who's the founder of ClickFunnels, leading authority on how to build a marketing funnel online. And then digital marketer, which is Russell Brunson, which is Roland Frazier, Ryan Dice, and Perry Belcher, who are arguably the most cutting edge digital marketers on the planet. Whose conference we are at right now, in yes. fact. Okay. What is one book that you would recommend to the audience that is most influenced to you or you would most recommend people read? I've got a list of 18. I'll give you, you want one? I can't do one. I'll give you Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson, Marketing to the Affluent by Dan Kennedy, and 80-20 Sales and Marketing by Perry Belcher. And for dealing with the gut punches and for inspiration, The $4 Sandwich by Dr. Corey Melnikoff. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you are currently using that you would recommend to people? software. It could be, you know, any kind of program that you're currently using that you'd recommend people check out. An online calendar so people can schedule on your calendar without going back and forth 20 times. I use youcanbook.me. There's a ton of them that work. I'm a big fan of Evernote and that's what I got. Cool. What is one travel hack that you would recommend that you have used? If you, well, the easiest one would be if you have a social media following to offer to the hotel to, you know, do a video review of one of their suites for your social media following. And a lot of the time, if they're available, they will just upgrade you as a thank you. 
Awesome. Knowing everything that you know now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Wow. It's going to be okay. Hire sooner. Build systems yesterday. Awesome. Last lightning round question, Seth. If you were starting today in 2019, nobody knew who you were. You didn't have any list. Nobody knew your name. You had no networking connections at all. You had $500 and a laptop and you were trying to figure out how to start a business. What would you do to start that business today? I would build a list of the people who had done what I wanted to do in the industry I would want to do it in. I would start a podcast. I would do it all on Zoom. So it was free and I would interview them on my show, get to pick their brains for free, and then use that information and those relationships to launch my company. Amazing. Seth, I want to thank you so much for being here today. And I want to ask you how people can find out more about you, about market domination. How can they follow you on social media? How can they get in touch? How can they see what you're up to, learn about what you're doing and connect with you? Website, marketdominationllc.com. If you want to enter to win a free podcasting studio, that's a couple hundred dollars worth of equipment. Go to podcaststudiocontest.com. You want to follow me on social media personally, it's Seth Green. And then professionally, it's Market Domination LLC on Facebook and everywhere else. Amazing. Seth, thank you so much for being here. This is an interview that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I'm super excited that we knocked it out today. Thank you so much for being here, buddy. My pleasure. And make sure you turn into the Sharkpreneur podcast to listen to me and Kevin. Absolutely. We're going to link everything up to the show notes. So everything that you've taught, we've talked about today, all the books that Seth recommended, all the places to contact him, all the people that were recommended that Seth encourages you to follow and, and, and look at their stuff. We're going to put everything in the show notes at uh, themaverickshow.com. So just go there and it'll be in one place. Seth, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.